Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. Well, today I'm excited because uh, the Reverend Christian Washington, who's my friend and co-laborer in Christ here at Chapelwood, mm-hmm. is visiting with us. And for those of you who are just listening on the podcast, and you may not know Christian, Christian is a African-American pastor, your pastor's lead pastor of the Upper Room community, which is one of Chapelwood's worship communities, multi-ethnic, multicultural, black, white, Asian, brown, just it, it, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently in the last year or so, we've moved off our main campus to the Heights, been doing really, really well, uh, the communities, and of course, then we got this COVID thing. Yeah. But what was important for me, Christian, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and I think for Matt too, with what we're facing now around race and the George Floyd killing, you are someone that people who listen to this podcast, people who are in Chapelwood, or maybe people who don't, but I'm thinking particularly people who are Chapelwood connected. They know you. Yeah. You know them. Uh, they love you, and they know you love them. Mm. Uh, because before you were a pastor in this community, you were a consultant and you worked in different parts of ministry. You worked with the sanctuary community. You helped turn on the upper room before it was the upper room. So, so many people have these deep connections with you. And that's why I thought mm. it'd be really good to hear yeah. from you and just kind of. Such a meant to be thing, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the first time I, I found my way to Chapwood was that guy right there. Oh, really? Matt Russell hired me. Uh, I was uh, working for a, a Christian think tank called Leadership Network yeah, up in, in Dallas. Uh, in Dallas. Uh, we studied where innovation was happening in the church. Uh, and I was coordinating what we called our urban church network, which became our externally focused kind of a missional church network. Uh, I left corporate America to go. And that was my first calling. Uh-huh. And, and somehow Matt, I, I, it, probably because I was the only African-American in the leadership network and I was doing urban stuff. Uh, Matt found me. We hmm. connected on one of maybe the uh, Leadership Network conferences or something like that. And he hired me to come here and do some strategic work yeah. as Mercy Street was really ramping up. And we took him off campus for a couple of days. Remember we went and yeah, did a, I remember, I facilitated yeah. this big, huge yeah. strategic session. We had like a hundred of our leaders there Yep, at the time. It was crazy. We designed and facilitated the whole thing and they did create their life groups and a whole lot of other yeah. things happened out of that. Uh, and that's what got me on the Chapwood radar uh, years later. Uh, Matt's off to work on his PhD, and but uh, Jim Jackson still remembered me, and uh, and so I, I met Dr. Jackson. Um, my huh. wife and I were on, about to move to California. Truthfully, mm-hmm. it was, it's 2000, the, the, uh, 2010, 11. Uh, economy had just been so bad that it was like let's sell the house, go back home, and I was going to probably become the director of um, congregational development for the CalPAC UMC. Uh, so I was interviewing for that. I was, we're looking to move back home to California and Jim Jackson put his arm around me and said, you're not leaving, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, uh, and we started off working with Hispanic ministry. They made me the director of strategic projects hmm. and, um, and it was uh, trying to figure out how with an aging congregation in neighborhoods that were changing, how Chapelwood could continue to grow. And, and the upper room was one of the strategies that came, became part of that. And here we are. Here we are. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> I love you, Christian. And you're back. 
I know. Jeff went on social media and just said, hey, we're going to have a conversation around race and around, you know, with, with us gathered together. And so there were a few things that came back. I often see people in position of power operate in a way that comforts their followers. And that's understandable. However, progress can often be very uncomfortable. When do you decide the hard, necessary, and uncomfortable conversations are essential and unavoidable? Is that time now? Um, I, I, I want to hit that a little. You, you got one too? No, you, but let, go let me hit this You're one. the guest. Uh, I, w- I was- <laughs> Let me uh, hit this one. <laughs> a, a good segue though. You were I, ready. I, you were- I, <laughs> my first job here working with Chapelwood was Matt Russell, not Dr. Matt, Matt Russell, Slim Shady, Matt Russell, uh, bringing me in to take them through a process to strategically adapt to their growth and the things that were going on at Mercy Street. And the process starts off with what is. Yes. We, uh, you know, it's like, really, what is your current state? And what is, is the brutal facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what is, generally speaking, if you're going to adapt, takes you into the next stage, stage for us is what could be. Mm-hmm. But in, in, if you look at it from uh, a theoretical standpoint, though, it's just like you know, natural science. It's like game theory. It's like um, uh, systems theory. We're going from a, a, a homeostasis, a, a, a steady state, but it's not going to change unless it's disturbed disequilibrium yeah that's exactly right uh that's right phd and a doctorate in leadership and uh, management that's right um disequilibrium is the next stage a disturbance has to happen you have to create tension uh for something to for our system to know it needs to change edgar shine who's the godfather of organizational culture and leadership says that he i can't remember exactly i said it but he said i would like to think that humanity by its very nature would see that they need to change. They, they would see things and go, we need to make this. And he goes, but the realistically, that's not the way it happens. No. no. The only way human beings and organizations change systemically is through the sufficient introduction of survival anxiety. Mm. And that is either the fear of death itself or the fear that we will not accomplish the, the goals or the purposes by which we were set forth to accomplish. Uh, yeah. And so it's death either way. <laughs> and so yeah. survival anxiety has to be sufficiently high enough to begin to institute the disequilibrium. Yeah. Right. And we can manage enough, you know, homeostasis for a human being. We think about the, the, the fluid in your ears, everything mm. that keeps you on balance. If you've ever had vertigo huh. before, you know that how that I've works. That. Yeah. And so, you know, our bodies are always working overtime just to be able to keep us to stand up straight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we can actually endure a pretty good range of disruption and never change. Yes. We're pretty mm-hmm. good pretty at Pretty sneaky at that. And so exactly what we're thinking about. So this question, for, as I think about it as a leader, is that there's two things to be very honest about. One is that a leader, you are always managing both the disequilibrium and the homeostasis. You are always managing the need to push and change, but also the need to comfort. So it's that old adage, which a lot of people will decry, but the old adage is, you know, it's the afflict the comfortable, comfort the afflicted. Yeah. And a church particularly is made up of a lot of people that are afraid and they are scared and you want to bring comfort 
and you want to bring peace. But we are also made up of systems and institution and things that are, you know, they need to be changed, need to be challenged. Mm. And I think this question, yes, what we're in now as it relates to race, these are these have always been very hard conversations for us to have in any church, right? White church, black church, whatever. But I think in the white church, we have really never wanted to have these conversations. Yeah. I often wonder too, like when we started this podcast, if this is one of the things why um, um, folks are either not in the church, have left the church or not coming back to the church. Because in some ways there are certain things that we just don't talk about or we don't struggle with, you know? And what, what I see the invitation is, is for the church, the white church, to not just struggle and dialogue, but to begin, I mean, to really enter into this in a way that, um, that is transformative. And I think as we do this, we become more legitimized in the culture as actually having something to say. Where are we going? What are we creating that's a new kind of community? And I think there's, for in this time and place, I think as a leader, mm-hmm. as a white person and leader, we're always behind these things. We're never on time. So I'll go ahead and admit that. But I do think this is the time, this is the season where if you want to continue to dismiss it, that's fine. But I just, I don't think, I think you're going to see a whole different way forward from this. Hmm. Now, I could be wrong. I've been wrong many times before. I hope I'm not wrong. Well, I I think um, for the pastors who are out there who are uh, now scared to death by hearing these answers already. Like, I don't know if I have the capacity to do that. I don't think I can do that. I really invite you to do a re-exploration of who Jesus really was. Um, uh, and, and, and take off the veneer, take off the cliches, maybe even like step back away from, from Bible school and Bible college and, and, and seminary for a second and, and, and dig a whole lot more into this ethnic minority from the oppressed race, the oppressed people, and how he responded to his oppression and how he led the people who were part of his tribe at the time. And then obviously he transcended that with death, burial, resurrection. But I think that that big focus, I, I, I'm one of the things I've been asked my friends who are the most woke is, do you still identify yourself as Christian? And quite a few of them, uh, say yes, and then I, I, put, I press them and they say, well, it all depends then on what kind of Christian we're talking about. And if, if you're talking about the way that Christianity has become in the dominant culture, they, they'll say no. Yeah, yeah and, and we won't get, go too deep in the weeds here, but yeah. I've shared with you this Twitter account of <laughs> a certain denomination, mm-hmm. independent fundamentalist Baptist. I didn't say, just say that out loud, but... Um, the level of blatant racism that exists using the Bible as that, it, that, that's a contaminated Jesus. Right. That is a Jesus constructed in the image of what I want there to yes. be rather than Jesus shaping us and forming us in. Exactly in. right. That's, that's how it works. How do I, as a person of privilege, help be an ally to my persons of color, POC friends and family. You want to take that? Yeah. You've been um, doing a lot of work in that 
Yeah, I, I, you know, there's so many other folks. I think about um, my colleague Rachel Snyder, who's a part of both Curate and is a um, is a uh, a Mennonite, in you know, and she's done this work in in the city. I'd love to, uh, and she's been so helpful to me in this. And part of the movement I begin to make is that there's a difference from me not just being a racist to educating myself um, about systemic racism, and that's the movement over the last number of years that I feel like the Lord's been taking me on, you know, to understanding the way that I was situ I situated my own upbringing, those things that were deeply privileged and helpful and all those things, right? To whom much is given, much is required. Mm -hmm. So there's that, you know, I'm, um, but to also then to realize that the journey is more than just saying, you know, I'm not a racist, but to like uh, Michelle Alexander's uh, book, The New Jim Crow, mm -hmm. to understand, oh, there's a system that I was born into, you know, to read ta Coates, Between the World and Me, to realize, oh, we've weaponized black bodies in this country to where that looks like a weapon now, yeah. not and like your, your question to your friend, you know, the, if it was a white, you know, person, what would happen? You know, mm -hmm. there's to take that in and to realize, oh, that's a system that, is. that does that, right? And so I think part of that is to, um, to become an ally, is to not lapse back into the individual, but to understand the system and to, um, and to stand in that system um, in a way that is deeply rooted in the Christian tradition of Jesus um, in the way that you were speaking. Of I, I, we have uh, friends who have been, uh, we're, my wife and I are orphans here in Houston. We don't have family here been here a long time though but we have friends that we've had dinner with on christmas day for the last seven years the pounds they live around the corner and um and they are amazing they're like our family they treat us like we're their family uh they, they are part of the upper room uh, all those kind of things but my words to them would be the same things i'd say you know it's like um we are uh we're good for me the answer to that question is 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 really what happens when you're not in spaces with me where you have influence and have the ability to talk? Yeah. Go back, Jeff. Um, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, right there. So <clears throat> this makes me think of, of something that you said. Why is it so hard for the other side to empathize? I feel that the other side doesn't even want to listen. Too quickly they respond with arguments instead of being open to receive what the other side has to say. Who's, so my, asking, who's asking this? Someone. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, why is it so hard for the other side to empathize? Well, sin, <laughs> brokenness. Uh, we live now in a culture, we've talked about this culture of certitude, uh, this individualistic I, me, postmodern, post-enlightened Western society where mm -hmm. whatever I think about anything is the most important thing of all. No more communal knowledge. It's just self-actualized, individualized exactly. kind of thing. Uh, the lack of human empathy is really sad to me. Um, and because the, the, the culture of certitude also shuts me down from dialogue. So I'm only discussion, discussion, the root percussion. You're mm -hmm. just banging on a drum. Whereas dialogue, the dialogos means the word that's mm -hmm. passing through. Mm -hmm. The words are going in and going out that you're listening, you're having a dialogue. We don't have dialogues anymore. We don't, only discussions where, and social media is the worst place 
to talk about. Social media is good for these blanket statements or criticizing things. Mm-hmm. There's no dialogue in social media. And so you, you made a comment that was important for me. When someone says, what can I do? Like if I'm a white person and what can I do? What, how, he's like, how can I support brothers and sisters in this time? I mean, real support beyond social media posts. You start with your sphere of influence. So I'm just saying, and I'm just being honest here, I think about my development and I'm not where I need to be and I didn't get here fast enough and that's on me. But I remember a season in my life where mm-hmm. I'm around other white brothers. We're at the golf course or wherever we do what we do, having beers and a joke happens or a comment's made or a cultural um, you know, observation. And there was a season in my life where I joined in Mm-hmm. Then there was a season in my life where I didn't join in, but I never countered. I didn't agree with it. I didn't like it, mm-hmm. but I just smiled and I was quiet. And now I'm in the season and have been for a while now. I can't tell you over the mm-hmm. past, since this all has opened up, how many really hard conversations I've had. Where I mean, I've literally had some friends of mine going, what the hell news are you watching? Right, right. And it's not comfortable. Yeah. But you know what? That's okay. Yeah. Because I feel like I'm in the right space. I mean, I had, I've had someone accuse me of being blatantly political. You know? Never thought I'd have a pastor who'd be so blatantly political. Choosing sides, you know? <laughs> and I'm kind of like... Jesus never did that. <laughs> never. But I mean, if... if I, I think it's hard in this season because... I can't speak into this dialogue as a person of color and I'm not trying to, I I am, when it comes to that, I'm listening because I have ignorance and privilege that I'm not even aware of. But when it comes to talking to other white folk, that's where I have some power and some privilege and some influence. That's the, that's where I have to start. Yeah. And and so for me, I, I feel like with some sense of, of, of authority, right, wrong or indifference, I can say, if you're a white person, what can you do? That's what you do. And it happens that the most powerful is in that small little interaction where in the past I might've been quiet or I might've smiled. Now I'm having some really hard conversations, but I'm also, when you're willing to do that, this is the miracle. All those years that I was scared that they would label, you know, they would push me aside or disregard me or label. These are people that are now, I understand you're right. You have a point. That's Instead right. of letting it just descend into whatever it would have become in the past. Yeah. And I'm not pointing that at me. I'm saying there's, there's a lot of people been doing this for a long time, but I'm saying it can be done. Yes. Yeah. It can be done. We yeah. can, we can shift minds of, um, white folk are just so, they have, they feel they have so much to lose because yeah. again, culture oh, superiority. Can, can I just, I, I'm sorry. I got to riff on that for half a second. Just give me go, a second. Y'all go. White folks feel like they have so much to lose. Mm-hmm. I love how you said that. Because what's at stake for white folk is a 400-year head start. Mm. My best, my, my, one of my mentors is Dr. Rudy Rasmus. Mm. Love Rudy. Get him on here. You'll, yeah, you, yeah, you might clear the room, but <laughs> get him All on. Right. <laughs> He's great. Uh, and Rudy it just is... Follow the money. Yeah. You can't serve God and mammon. Now, it, it, the way that this has been insidiously like 
pushed down as a full culture of whiteness and superiority has less to do with the majority of folk. It is a, a real top-down kind of thing that says that we will do whatever is necessary. You know, I, I, think, I think Malcolm X learned this from, from white people, but by any means necessary to maintain our privilege. Um, but we'll use the Bible, we'll use our institutions, we'll use our media, we'll use anything we need to do to adapt and maintain this superiority that really comes down to power and money at, at some point. And so you get Jesus speaking into this. This has not changed. This is empire building. This is colonizing 101. It's a playbook. Mm-hmm. And Jesus was just merciless about, if I might be a Christian for half a second, Jesus might be, was merciless about this stuff, about this separation and this 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 worshiping at the at the feet of mammon at the feet of of power and money and superiority and and came to completely dismantle that system i think that's incumbent upon us now in our spheres of influence to be like jesus and see that it's it's not enough to be i'm not racist you got to be anti-racist at this point mm. you got to be anti-racist at this point and that, and that looks differently for different people, but it, it starts with something you just said. It's that you're on the back nine and you got a, and you got a cart that's, that's been like, you know, pumping you up and you're on the back nine and that stuff starts and somebody has to say, I'm not for it. It starts with little things like that. Mm-hmm. Microaggressions have to be like countered. Mm. Yeah. And, and once that happens, now you at least have awakened some folks. They may not invite you to the next foursome, <laughs> you know, but I don't care. I mean, the bottom line is that you, you, you did, I think, in that moment, what we are really called to do as followers of Jesus. But we are, <clears throat> it, just sounds, it just sounds the way it sounds, you know, because of my privilege and this, the, the things that I've experienced and where I've been and who I am, I, I am equipped to be able to get Absolutely. these folks to begin to think differently. Exactly right. They're not threatened by me. Right. So when I can help them to see this honestly, and that's why I'm saying there have been a lot of really transformative conversations. They've been hard and it's been testy because they want to do the, well, that was horrible, but, but, you know, and just exactly like you said, it's all right. Oh, stop. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. And I think there can be change. I just don't think we've ever tried and I don't think, I mean, again, it's not going to be easy. I mean, but I'm like you. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, then what you find is Jesus who, you know, Roar does a great, um, sort of a great synopsis of the Sermon on the Mount that really challenges all these cultural assumptions. And our love of stuff, money, status, prestige, influence, ease, yeah. whatever it might be, yeah. um, is a big impediment to live in the gospel. Yeah. And I wonder too, if some of our, like our Christianity is at a real immature state, like it's at an immature stage inside of me when my Christianity is about my own security primarily mm-hmm. and that own security then working itself out to kind of monetary and these things that I perpetuate. Mm-hmm. But if Jesus comes along and, 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 
issues this statement, follow me, right? Um, and this deep sense of following Jesus out of my own identity structures, out of my own political systems, out of in, and and this one that says, I want to give you a new horizon. I want to, I want you to imagine um, um, something that could be different on this earth, as earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. Right on this earth, it could be different. And this isn't about right, left, up, down. This is about our social relationships being ordered differently in love, and in equity, and in opportunities, and those things. And so that that then when we b- begin to then infuse it with these you know um we pull each other apart to different sides and what i'm hearing is this um it the way that it's been configured doesn't work for anybody no but the way through unfortunately is matt recite the first five steps of the 12 steps yeah matt recite them or summarize the first five steps. That's like when Billy Graham was on the airplane and the guy goes, get to the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, them. oh my gosh. Yeah, but yeah. What, go, go, Matt. Well, yeah, the first one is admitting that you have a problem. The second step is uh, acknowledging that there's a God. You're not God. Third step is surrendering your life and your will to the care of that God. Fourth step is uh, um, a fearless and moral inventory. The fifth step is then ex- expressing the exact nature of your wrongdoing to another person. Yeah. That's the way through. And uh, the amends are for you between four and five. That's yeah. where you find. Yeah. After five. After five. It's just yeah. it's, make a list of amends of every, all the ways that this stuff has like affected you. So it's not just like the, the thing about addiction or the thing about these things that pull us apart. And I just see addiction, not in terms of substance or process, but all these things that, that, that are in our culture that make us less human, you know, uh, the way that we've, We've, we've used them and the process is getting us to wake up you know to go oh there's a different way I can be more fully alive if I ever start a podcast I'm going to have you on and I, and I really want to like I'd love to explore what the 12 steps would look like if we took white America through them oh. to get through racism as a addiction and well, we can just do it on this podcast yeah I mean I, I'd yeah. love you did your PhD in it so it's like, it's like just to talk about that and what that might look like because I, th- I think that, th- that that is one of the, the biggest hangups. Um, you know, where's God? You know, where's, where's full admission? Yeah. Um, but then also, are you willing to do the next part of the work? Yeah. Um, don't, don't even, if you talk to James Cone, God rest his soul, he's, he's, yeah. he's agitating in the cloud of witnesses right now. <laughs> but he'd be still saying, where's the reparations? Yeah. You know, to, oh, the R word. You know, because it would be trillions of dollars right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's and it's not going to be a transfer of wealth. So if we're not going to do that, where are the where are the structural rep- reparations? Where are the systematic reparations? Yeah. Where are the things that that make us truly people who are treated fairly under the law and have the same opportunities as anybody else? I mean, yeah. that's that's when you have to get to amends, and that's something that unfortunately, black folk, we can't do that by ourselves. That's right. I, I think it's a question we have to ask ourselves that COVID hits, businesses shut down, and we can find $2 trillion to, to print it. throw out there in like in a, in a month, but some systemic socioeconomic problems in society. Food deserts. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I, I think, you know, to me, there's got, you got to be honest about the uh, 
the hypocrisy that we, we are all a part of. Those of us, some, some people who on a political ideological spectrum say, I don't believe in deficits. I don't believe in spending more money than you have. I don't mean, it's like, okay, then we gave up on that a long time ago. <laughs> like, cut my taxes. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I, I do think there is, um, I think you cannot separate morality from leadership. And I think we're in a place in our culture where people think that they can have leaders um, and not consider the morality or the amorality or the immorality of the leader. They want the byproducts they think that will come. And I'm just telling you, it doesn't matter what party it is. If you try to um, separate or somehow compartmentalize morality and leadership, you're going to end up with a problem. Amen. Which is... well. And, and we've seen that. And, and, you know, I will say this isn't the first time in the history of our country that, that, that we would have made that uh, bartering sort of deal. Uh, but I will say that uh, in, in every one of those situations, we pay a price. Period. Yes. We had a, a, an incident where a woman was leaving here, black woman had come to a women's something years ago you remember this oh yeah and she's just walking home because she lives not far from here and she's doctor blah 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 phd she's walking home and someone calls in and says there's a suspicious person walking in the neighborhood you know you know uh police cars come up sirens going that whole thing flag her down and now she's standing out there humiliated um, she calls back. She calls back to the women who are in the women's thing, and some of them are like driving by, going, "Oh my gosh, she was just with us. She's a Chapelwood person." And and so we had to finally, John, you know, John got the police chief to come here to the to the uh, campus. It was not a good day. Not a good day, and I ended up having a confrontation with the police chief. But you know, um, and we actually had the woman come because I wanted to, admit, to like see what's happening here and say, is there another way this could have happened? But she was just a black woman walking. But the thing that I remember that was the first thing to come to mind was that this one was a PhD. Like you just pulled over Dr. T you know, Tamika um, and treated her like, and, and I had to check myself because it didn't matter if she's Dr. Tamika. Mm -hmm. It does not matter if she was walking from being a domestic in somebody's house. You know, she should not have been pulled over just because someone looking out their window saw someone who didn't look like them and that difference caused them to go to a place that said, that's a threat. Yeah. And that's, that's what we're really facing. I want to I come back to that particular instance because I think I learned a lot through that too. Mm -hmm. I went and met with the police chief. They should do it. He played me all the, the video and the audio, told me all the, all the crime, like there's all the crime in the villages, you know, and what the profile was. And I'll never forget uh, because that's when Upper Room was meeting on campus here. And y'all you, you got, you were doing like basketball nights. And all guys were picking uh, up basketball. And I said, I asked him, I, I'm, I'm, I said, so you're, if four black men are in, riding in a car coming into Piney Point mm -hmm. to play basketball on our campus, if there's four black men in a car, are you telling me you're going to pull them over? He said, probably. Yeah. Um, I said to him, 
when everybody left, he and I talked for another 20 yeah. minutes. It was not good. It wasn't good. It was not good. You know, he's not here anymore. He's uh, been gone a long time. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah Paul told me. Uh, but um, I told him that we've got this basketball thing that we do. It's heat of the summer. All you have to just tell people, look, there's a nice air-conditioned gym you can come to and play ball. <laughs> And it turns with out, nets. well, there you go with yeah, with nets inside, uh, and your car is going to be okay. Uh, say all those things. Well, you know, our our group at Upper Room is diverse uh, racially, but kind of disproportionately upper middle class kind of people, you know, of all races. So the word got out, and the people who were playing basketball were by and large professional guys who were engineers and lawyers and doctors and that kind of thing. Now we get on a basketball court. It's a basketball court. We're just playing basketball, which means mm -hmm. folks going to talk trash. A few elbows might fly. Some people may have like some stuff they have to suppress all day, every day in their career. But on a basketball court, I can just be as badass as I want to be, you know, and, and it goes back to the code of how you play ball <laughs> in the street. And two guys kind of got into it. Uh, yeah, just over, just competition, uh, and ran outside. And they, they're still screaming outside as like some Wednesday night Bible studies were letting out, <laughs> and folk were just mortified. Which was my worst nightmare because all it would take, which is what I said to the chief, I said he said the same thing to me by the way. I said if, if two guys, mm -hmm. two black guys, sweaty, are riding down uh, Binehorn, are they going to get stopped? He said, if somebody calls it in, most likely, or if, they get, if they're seen, most likely, because that's the profile. And I said, you know, wish I had him on tape. But um, I said, all it would take is one of these guys who went to Rice and medical school at UT to say, in my world, I'm at the top of the food chain. And you're pulling me over for a humbug and just be just, you just catch him one day when he's like, go and take it. Mm -hmm. wow. And that's how Sandra Bland happens. That's how, you know, that's how somebody looks in the car and, and, and um, because they get fearful and their training doesn't allow them to like diffuse that just a black man rising up saying, I'm going to treat this just like I'm a white guy and say, what's your badge number? Who are you? Why are you pulling me over? This is ridiculous. You know who I am. And you catch the wrong guy, wrong, wrong training, wrong moment. And we've got a major national incident happening right here. You've got to do something. And he looked at me and we, you know, we, had, we, had, we had a minute. <laughs> it wasn't good. And the thing, uh, the thing that I'm learning as I'm listening is, and I, and I guess as a, a person of privilege in the, the world that I've grown up in, even though I have grew up around diversity, it's not, you know, I, I'm realizing how, much I think there's diversity in that and, and yet I'm still in my world in my realm yeah. and I'm, I'm realizing now as I think about it and trying to be objective I think if anybody wants to be objective about this you can is that police are trained to respond a, a, a police force is is a violent force they're tr they're it's, it's the what I read that they're they're trained to respond on the possibilities of what could happen so they're always thinking the most violent worst case scenario yeah so when you have police go to a domestic uh, uh, domestic call right you get mad at your wife and you start yelling and the neighbors call you i mean mm -hmm. it doesn't assume their assumption is going to be the mm -hmm. worst case scenario yeah. that's what they're trained to do there could be a gun there could be alcohol there could be all those sorts of things well on the one hand you want that in case there is 
But if that's the assumed value for every single interaction that they have, it's, it's why it's not just one bad cop every once in a while. It, that's what, when people are talking about a culture that needs to change, a yeah. system that needs to change, that's, and, I, and again, I don't even know all the ways that that needs to happen, but I'm starting to listen now in ways that I've never listened before. And I'm hearing things that I go, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I just, for some reason, never either thought about it or wanted to think about it or wanted to admit it. That's when, when someone says, when you talk about listening, what's the question on the listening, right? Why is it important to listen during this time? Well, my first response to that, it's important to listen all the time. There's never a time when it's not important to listen. But when you're at these critical moments, it's like my, all these, all these things I've said through the years, my prayers, my support, something's got to change, something's got to change. And I realize that's not doing crap. No. And it's not even changing me. And so this thing has really pushed me to a place that says, I got to shut up for a while. Well, let's even like hit what you just talked about though. Um, one of my best friends who died a couple of years ago was LAPD for 20 years. And a guy I grew up with, played ball with, known him, you know, my whole life, most of my life. Uh, but being LAPD really changed him mm-hmm. a lot because his thing was always, I'm trying to get home, right? So if I'm trying to get home, there's certain things that I have to assume, as you said. The difference is, what other biases do I bring into my reading of the situation? And, and part of that has to do with um, a really good movie a few uh, couple years ago uh, came out. I can't think of the name of it. Same kind of different as me, I think was the name of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it, it was a, a, a black girl um, dealing with the, the killing of her friend or a boyfriend kind of thing in a cop who walks up and it's, he's got a cell phone and cop thinks it's a gun. Shoots him down, right? Oh, no, that's not same kind of difference. That's not same kind of difference? No, that's the the white guy and the black guy that become friends, and he wrote the book. That's a difference. All right, that's different. All right, so this is different. Um, uh, So the black girl uh, goes to her uncle, who's a police officer, and asks her uncle point blank. All right, so the kid gets out of the car, um, puts up his hands, you know, uh, and then... um, says, oh, I, f- I forgot, I want, I, want to, I want to film this. So he reaches back into the car to get his phone, comes back out to film it, and gets shot down, right? So uh, she asks her uncle, if that is, if you were in that same situation, what would you do? You know, he said, well, dark, by myself, tall black male I probably shoot him too she said what if it's white guy in a suit in a long pause I probably yell out warning to him to make sure I know what's in his hand let me see your hands things like that and he's just being honest hmm. about it and it just it, it it goes to the the thing that that I believe is the reason why I'm I'm so upset now, um, and that's the kind of devaluing and dehumanization of black people, black men in particular, um, that renders us 
both a bit inhuman and a threat. And having that imprinted on the soul and the cellular memory of, of the majority or people in power, um, whether it's operating consciously or subconsciously, yeah. it shows up as a lens that we see things through. It's interesting to me. It feels like our culture, as you talk, and as Cleve was here last week, that we've weaponized a whole um, skin color. Yeah. And so within our culture, um, the color of a person's skin is now a weapon, and it's seen as a weapon. And so then, um, and and really, you don't need any longer bad cops. We talk a lot about bad cops or these kinds of things, and there are, um, you know, sure. there are, I'm sure. But at the, there's a system now that is, um, um, it's not a level playing field. That is a, that's a crazy dream. There is a system now that no longer needs bad cops. It just does what it does, right? And so you have then all of these folks that are dying based on policy. The, the, these cops are acting out of policy. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's not, they're not being brought up on charges that don't fit within that policy. And so I think that what we're... Um, part of this rest and unrest that's happening is, um, and this need to listen, is to step back and to say, um, is there a need to really look at the entire system, not just individual, yes, for sure individuals, mm -hmm. but also the system in which these individuals and all of us are collectively involved in? Well, look, I, I think that you, you're hitting on the most important thing now. Uh, this, country, this country is founded on individual liberty. I know. Even though it's interesting, it was it was a group of people who are fleeing religious persecution and tyranny who came here, you know, not my words, but founded the country on a genocide, built it on slavery, um, solidified it on supremacy. Well, um, and originated it yeah. by rioting and uprising. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, which mm. they would call civil, civil, civil liberty. Civil, dis civil disobedience. <laughs> yeah, civil disobedience. You know, direct action. You know, that's what they did against, you know, the king. Uh, it's, it's that rugged individualistic capitalism that, that says that, and especially with majority culture, especially with white culture, that really my world is me. My world is a small circle around me. If I'm not racist, therefore this is not racist. If the people I know and I'm close to aren't racist, then we're not racist. And, and people can kind of get these nice one-off notions that we've gotten past the worst of this. You know, Jim Crow's over. Um, yeah, well, my, my new summer series is called Jim Crow Christianity, so I don't think it's over. But, um, but Jim Crow's over, redlining's over, so to speak. Um, and we have so many folks that you can point to and say so many things have happened. And obviously Obama happened. And, and so we, we're past this, right? We're past this. Um, what is missing is exactly what you said, though, um, that this is really about a system of oppression that adapts to whatever conditions there are in the world to maintain superiority, inferiority. So you can't enslave people anymore. Okay, then we'll create ways to disenfranchise you and segregate you and keep you from voting and those kind of things. We get past that and, and now we got to figure out ways to um, redline you and keep you still in your own neighborhoods. And you get past that and now we got to figure out ways to incarcerate you. 
know, now we got to put in policy and make sure that we have ways to disenfranchise you another way. And, and also reinforce inferiority, superiority kinds of narratives that even pit people against each other who are in the same socioeconomic situation or economics that you'd think would be connected. Um, this is decidedly a, a, a systems issue. It is, um, it is a policy issue. And um, this is the fight that I think is the fight ahead of us now is to start to deconstruct um, and, and revolutionize uh, public policy. Uh, and that's going to take all of us, you know, to actually jump into that. I heard you guys talk about this last week, and I think it's also a really important thing, that um, language is important as we move forward. You know, Cleve and the guys are all over this. Mm. But I, I'm, I'm getting the same questions about Christian how do we do reconciliation? And I finally have jumped on the bandwagon. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was like, for a long time, I was trying to like, well, we're reconciling to God. We're reconciling to the garden. We're reconciling to the, the uh, beloved community. I'm like, I was, and it's all BS. You know, the truth is there's no place you can go back to and say we were consiled. You know, when, you're, when you're the people who have been systematically oppressed, you are sitting there uh, hearing people go, I want to make America great again, or I want to, I want to, let's do racial reconciliation and let's do privilege walks and make people feel like, oh gosh, my white fragility is on, on display and what have you. And the only thing changes is some small incremental, not even incremental, but some small personal exorcis- ex- exercising of guilt and maybe some, some personal relational stuff that can, can kind of happen in, in small and maybe some church communities and other kinds like that. But it does not change the fact that um, your schools are based on property taxes. So if the property tax base mm-hmm. is better, you get better schools because it goes localized to where the property taxes are coming from. Now, now we're talking about a whole other can of worms that says, well, I live on the south side of I-10. Why should I suffer for to make sure that the north side of I-10 you know, has, has a school, has better schools. I, we pay our taxes right here. Let's keep it right here. And the system perpetuates inferiority and, and inferiority and superiority even of schools. Within the same district. Within the same district. <clears throat> so um, that's the conversation that has to be had. It's agenda conversations. It's structural conversations. And for me, it's, it's bringing in these people we have a, a whole generation of young people of color who've gone to the highest levels of higher education. I'm so glad that Curate is mobilizing so many of them here mm-hmm. in local in Houston. But there's a whole brain trust yes. out there that needs to be mobilized around agendas yeah. and structural change. There's a a, a, a um, um I'm, I'm getting bolder as I as I get more into this. Um, there's a a report that was done with some recommendations under the Obama administration on, in particular, police reform and law enforcement reforms. 131 pages, got all this information in it. And, and it, what it focuses in on is that you're missing it if you're worried, as, if you're so worried about the president changing and you're so worried about Congress changing that mm-hmm. you should be really interested in mayors, city councils, county commissioners, uh, local people that actually district attorneys, county attorneys, local folks, judges that are right there in your, in your area 
that's where the Castillos and the, the Aubreys and what really happens is at that level. Mm-hmm. And, and we've had our eye off the ball for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And, and Obama getting elected took our eye off the ball quite a bit because it, it, it federalized our thinking with regard to policy and federalized our thinking with regard to intervention, thinking, okay, well, we got to the highest level. Let's just work at the highest level. Yeah. No, the truth is it's your alderman, it's your councilman or well, woman. Policing is always local. I mean, there's it's, federal police and state police, but even within, within state uh, structure, your state police is very limited. You got highway patrol and you have some investigative unit. All policing is local, yeah. whether it's county or city. Right. Uh, and federal law enforcement doesn't have the authority to police local. I mean, it, it ha- exactly. has to be like mobilized in certain unique situations. So in Houston, you have the constables and you have the police department, city, and you have county, sheriff's department. I mean, mm-hmm. and those are things that local. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think when I heard from Cleve last week, it's like, you know, I don't. I don't have to go out and try to change the whole world. I don't have to go out and try to change things that I can't. It's like I was on a, a call yesterday with a pastor of another large congregation. And he's like, you know, the bail system has to be reformed. How, how do I do that? You know, the, this hmm. has to be reformed. How can I even do that? I said, I don't think that's what we're called to do. I think yeah. we have a sphere of influence. Yeah. And what we have to do is, is use the power that we have and the privilege that we have to impact and the sphere of influence that we're in. And there's a lot of it there. It's just, if everybody starts doing that, if people start getting woke, I guess is the right word to this and start moving, just, I I think this is a pivotal moment to me. I, I, I feel that in the last couple of years, we've seen a couple of things that have uh, changed the fault lines. I think the, for within the United Methodist church, the general conference of 2019 mm-hmm. where the traditionalist plan passed. So it wasn't just a reaffirmation of the continuing position on human sexuality. It ramped everything up. It yeah. became overly legalistic, very penal. Yeah. And what it did was it caused people like me to begin to think about this whole thing differently, yeah. Yeah. you know, than I had ever before. Yeah. I think COVID pandemic um, yes. is another thing where all of a sudden wearing a mask has become a huge partisan political issue. Yeah. Where I have people that said, have said to me, if, if you say I got to wear a mask, come back to church, I'm not coming back to church. Like whatever, like, like for a year till there's a vaccine. I mean, um, I, I, that's another thing. And then this, there's something about this. And I know, I, I wish, I wish I wasn't in that position. I can only lament not getting there sooner, but this, it's not just me. You're seeing on yeah. the entire country and yeah. it's very disruptive to people who want to, what, what are your thoughts? You know, as I'm talking to people, mm-hmm. I'm really trying to get people to think broadly and to just challenge their assumptions. It's really hard to do because I think white people are laced with a lot of things that they got to protect. Yeah. And then I don't think we realize all of that. Mm-hmm. And so I said to Cleve last week, you know, we get so defensive, we get so defensive. And so I can't tell you how many times I've heard the following. What happened to George Floyd was horrible, but. Yeah. But look at all that rioting. Look at all that looting. That's criminal. That's horrible. Blah, 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 blah. And I've also heard, 
I'm not a racist. I used to have a guy I worked with that was black. I loved that guy. And the difference between a personal prejudice and racist when you're living and acting in a way, just even by your silence, that perpetuates, like you said, some of these systems yes, not changing. Yeah. That's, that's the difference I've learned between, I might not be prejudiced, but there are some things about my life that are racist that I'm not even aware of. Yeah, I think the two, two thoughts. First thought is the key word I think right now is solidarity. Uh, it's not reconciliation. You know, uh, you can have solidarity and not necessarily be reconciled. You know, you can say, I disagree with you on sexual orientation stuff, but I totally agree with you on this. And we can set aside my sexual orientation stuff right now because just what happened to George Floyd was, was terrible. Um, first thing I'll, first, first thing I'll say about that, that, that the person who would say to you, what happened to George Floyd was horrible, horrific, the worst, but stop them, white people. Mm -hmm. When you're in the safety of your whiteness, talking to someone who respects you enough to tell you this thing and say this to you, stop them in their tracks and say, no buts. Mm -hmm. Can we just put a period there for a moment? Whatever else you're going to say, we're going to bifurcate those things. We're not going to let them, we're gonna, and we're, we're going to hold them both in the tension of them. But the truth is, if you connect them, we're done. Because then George Floyd gets lost. It's minimized. Not only does George Floyd gets lost, he gets thrown into an a, a automatic feedback kind of loop thing that is like all my programming, you know, all, my, all my starting off with um, difference, difference becomes um, preference or bias, Bias can then move into prejudice. You know, you kind of like move through this whole thing that we notice the difference. Uh, a little kid notices the difference and may not even see that as anything wrong. Um, then get, gets fed back to biases and what have you. Um, this stuff has been imprinted, the same inferiority stuff that's been imprinted on people of color well, for as long as we've been in this country. Right. Superiority has been imprinted on white people. Um, one, of the, one of the great, great moves, I think evil genius moves, was taking people who weren't even white in, in the initial uh, Irish immigrants, Irish. <laughs> Italian immigrants who looked closer to me. Yeah. And when they got here, they got to be white. Yeah. Hmm. If they, <laughs> Caucasians. Yeah. Asians were, were considered to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you get to this country <laughs> and you and, and all and now you get the privileges yeah. and rights and privilege of being a real American and being white. And even if you're subservient people who are out there working in the factories and and doing all the, the menial jobs and what have you, you're better than the blacks. You're better than the browns. Uh, and you can, you can that's been imprinted for 400 plus years. And now you, you walk into this situation and, and, and they say, what happened to George Floyd sucks. But those looters, when you start looting, we start shooting. Mm -hmm. hey, look, the most infuriated I've been in the last few years was seeing a meme where one tweet from uh, our supreme leader said, if armed people walk up to the Capitol protesting masks, they're just mad. They're good people. There's some good people there. They're mad. Negotiate with them. Cut a deal. 
uh, and then put that tweet next to, hey, look, these are thugs who are out here protesting this, this whole thing with Floyd. And if they start looting, we start shooting. We got your back. And you put those two things together. Let them, let them put them side by side. And, and that is, that's America hmm. in one meme. You know, that's the, the, the two Americas that a study that came out in the 70s, 80s said that we're, we're going to be two Americas. We're those two Americas. Mm -hmm. But now we've got people stoking the fire of it for their advantage to continue that thing. Um, where you see, uh, thankfully, the hope I have is there are a couple of police, uh, I think Newark and a couple other places where the police actually got out, kneeled, and was, were in solidarity with the protesters. They didn't walk out with guns blazing and riot set suits. up waiting for riots. They had masks on and their photos of them kneeling, um, saying, hey, look, we're with you on this. That cop doesn't rec represent us mm. and, and should not represent us. What happened there was wrong. It's not even how we trained. And, and if more of that type of thing start happening, but that is, as, as Cleve would say, that, that, those are the conversations I can't have with you. Those are the conversations you have to have amongst each other. And it's about checking yourselves now mm. and, and not allowing folks to, to um, have enough I don't know, guile you know, to, to, to hold those two things in tension, that there are a few folks who are misguided in their, in their responses and maybe even opportunities in their responses to this. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a good thing or whatever, but that is not the same as what happened to George Floyd. And if you try to like conflate them, you know, you just play into keeping the status quo going. Mm. I agree. Part of the, the, the thing I've been struggling with too, I think over the, the process of, of walking into this and, and um, kind of the work that our church is doing, the work we're doing at Curate, that's happening at the upper room in the city. Um, as a white pastor, you know, um, surrendering my life and my will to the care of Jesus, um, as a Christian, and then um, thinking that that was the deepest work I had to do, um, which which uh, it is, it's huge, and then coming up to to realize that in some ways, oh, this um, the pain that I'm seeing in the world, and um, my spiritual life um, have to be connected a little more, uh, and that often what I've done is I've said um, I'm not a racist. Um, I may be in a racist system, but I'm not that. Mm -hmm. And part of what um, I hear, I'm, I'm, um, my African-American brothers and sisters saying, is that um, you can't um, do the individual move against the whole system. Yeah. That part of the move I have to make is to recognize the system that I'm in and in, in, a, in, a, in a way become Christian in the way of lament. To lament, to say, oh, Oh, this is the way the world is. This is the way the world's set up. Absolutely. And what is Jesus and these, when he talks about the kingdom of God, what does that have to maybe say or do or help with our imagination that it, we could form this differently? One thing that I, first let me appreciate that you, you called it kingdom and not kingdom. Mm. I, I caught that and I really appreciate that. Um, colonialism is a, a big issue among the woke set that seemed to be coming my way more and more. Um, this, this to me, this goes back to something that is completely a Western idea and, and very much an American idea. And that is 
Jesus Christ is my personal savior. I came to I came to Christ through an evangelical movement called Campus Crusade for Christ. And they literally scared the hell out of me. <laughs> they gave me the four spiritual laws. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. And you're going to burn in you're hell You're a sinner. <laughs> <laughs> and separated from God. And they show you a, two cliffs. And you're over here. The only bridge is across. But Jesus is your, is your way across this, this goal. But God had to beat the Not heck to, out of Jesus to get you across oh, that thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now say, these, say the magic seven words and get in some water and, and you're good. And, and and literally that's that's that scared the hell out of me. I mean, I mean, I don't mean that euphemistically. I I did not want to burn in hell forever. And my first conversion experience was really out of fear yeah. that that might be true. We called it fire insurance among our, my intellectual friends. Yeah. Um, but they introduced me to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and that is a uniquely kind of westernized idea, because it's not Eastern, it's, just, it's a westernized idea about the body of Christ or, or our, our relationship with God as being something that can be individualized and personal. When even the word lament, even the laments were, they were communities and, and nations called to lament. That wasn't an individual thing. It was a prophetic call to a whole group of folks that break out the sackcloth, break out the ashes. You know, we all cry together for the person who's mourning. We all mourn with who mourns. And we, we've completely lost that. We've lost that connection. In, in our community, um, uh, in the Upper Room community, we, we uh, have a, um, a theology, a developing theology called the Theology of Significance. But now I realize now in the midst of all this, I, I can trace it back to a few, few things. And the main thing I trace it back to is in my childhood, Jesse Jackson showed up at our Compton school when I was a kid. And he made us all repeat over and over, I am somebody. Mm. And I had no idea what he was doing. I just thought it was kind of cool. I am somebody. My mind's a pearl. I can be anything in the world. My mind's a pearl. I can be anything in the world. I am somebody. I am somebody. And he said, down with dope. And we all went, mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> up with hope. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we go, up with hope. <laughs> we're back with him on up with hope. Down with dope. And, uh, and Compton was like, nah, nah, we ain't down with dope. But uh, we're down with dope. <laughs> but but he, was, he, was move, he was pushing us as all black kids in Compton School District and then in the Los Angeles School District where I ended up in high school, uh, I now understand what he was doing and what he was, what he was trying to do. He was, he was trying to counteract the, um, what, the, what the church and society was saying to us, that we were separate, we were unequal, yeah. uh, and therefore our, our connection with, with life made us less valuable and have, having less worth. Um, I, like to say it, I like to say it this way. Um, Jesus walked into this world and walked around in a birthright system all around him. It's a system of birthright. You're, how you were born, what's, what family you were born into, what race you were born into, wherever you were in a genetic lottery, that's how things work for you. If you're born um, a carpenter, then you're going to be a carpenter. And your carpenter's son's going to be a carpenter mm -hmm. and, and on and on. If you're born a Jew in a big Roman society, you know, he, you're in a minority and you're an oppressed minority. And, and, and maybe you're from even 
Galilee, and we know no good thing comes from Nazareth or Galilee. All those things are things you're born into, and you can't change them. If you're born into a Pharisee family, even among the Jewish sect, now you've got the opportunity to, have, uh, to be able to, to listen and learn from the Pharisee and become a Pharisee yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus came, and, and what I believe Jesus did in his redemptive work was to say, we're changing the system, we're dismantling the system of birthright and replacing it with a system called adoption. Where, where the creator is offering this universal adoption to humanity and saying that you didn't have to be born in this sect or this place or this family, what have you, just like the, the, time of the, the, uh, the mores of his time Adoption was an irrevocable covenant. It was a choice by the person who's adopting to choose to adopt someone. And when they did, that became more their son or daughter than their blood son or daughter who they could disown. Yep. And this offer of adoption uh, allows everybody, regardless of how they're born, mm. to, to transcend their birthright and become the adopted sons and daughters of God, which gives you ultimately the same worth, the same opportunities, the same name, and power of attorney with that name. I'm preaching now. But, <laughs> but, but that is, that's what flies in the face of what we're seeing now because saying that this is personal and my personal piety and my personal deepening with Jesus is the important thing here, lets people have the ability to say, if I'm not racist or if my household is not racist, then, or if my generation isn't the generation that enslaved you. You know, so why, why are you just trying to make me feel bad? Mm. Um, I think this is a time for um, uh, white folks not only to feel bad, but do something about it. Um, mm. Which is, the, if, we, if we keep moving on, I'm sure we go in there, that this has to now lead to some action. Mm. Um, now that you've been agitated and disturbed, we need to live in the what should be's now instead of the what is and what was, mm. you know, there's a, there's a thing we call the talk. Probably heard about this in the black community. And the talk is not the birds and the bees, the facts of life. The talk is how to get home if the police stop you. You know, I'm bored. I was, I've been hearing this stuff since I was very, very young. My sister had to teach this stuff to her kids. And now we're on a third generation for me where my, my sister's kids are now starting to have kids and dealing with the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that is become as docile as you can be. Make sure your hands are, are clearly visible. Say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And try to be as non-threatening as you possibly can be. And my mother would say things like, you have a big mouth, Christian. She called me buddy. Buddy, you got a big mouth. Um, but if you get pulled over by a cop, you need to shut your mouth, answer the questions that have been asked you, and make sure your hands are visible, 10 and 2, at all times. If you're, if you're of color watching me, if you're black, listen to this right now, you're nodding your head. You know this, you've heard, this, you've heard the talk. Uh, I had to have that talk with my godson not long ago, and it, it, it pained me so much to have to do it again. Why? Because just me being, my existence is a threat and is stamped as a threat. 
Um, every video we've seen, uh, CCTV video of George Floyd said that says that whatever was happening before this went down, there was no resistance. There was nothing he did that was, I'm on PCP and you can't keep me down. Um, he made no aggressive movements as far as we can tell. You know, no, there's no audio, but you can see video all there's over the place. There's early video. Yeah, so, there, yeah. And, so and, and as far as we can tell, he didn't provoke anything violent in this at all. And yet he ended up in the situation he's in. Well, I, I am George Floyd. I'm coming home from a party in college with my best friend. Uh, we are the two squarest black guys. We may not seem square on the outside, but we didn't drink, we didn't smoke, we didn't do drugs. We both were just um, so concerned with being like first ones to go to college and we're not, we can't blow this and that whole thing. But we, were at a, we went to a college party in another town. I drove afterwards, not inebriated. And back then, you go to a party, you wanted to dress to impress. We were dressed up, looking good, smelling good, coming home. So we're, we're driving back, had a couple of phone numbers. We had a good night. And, um, and then I see lights flashing behind me. So I've, I've been trained. I, I, I've, been pull, I, I've been trained. So I, I immediately say, you know, you know, Russell, don't say anything. What, you know, let's just do what we know we know to do. We get pulled over. And by the time we're pulled over, two more cop cars come. And instead of saying license and registration, they just say, get out of the car. Um, we get out of the car and they make us go and they immediately move us and sit us down on the curb. This cars are passing by. If nothing else, there's a humiliation and a shaming, a perp walk kind of situation that happens that I hate to say it, but it's so normalized for me that I just even like worry about it. It didn't, that didn't enrage me. I was mostly sitting there in terror because we looked around behind us and there was a police officer who was standing behind a tree taking cover with a rifle trained on both of us. Um, and when you look up and you see you're, you're in the sights of a rifle, now we're, now we're in full on terror and interestingly enough below the surface rage because we knew we're the good guys. We, you know, we, we were literally the good guys. Um, and then one police officer um, goes to our pockets, gets our wallets, gets our information, and that's how they start to go check it. While one's checking it, one comes up to me and my, and my best friend sitting on a curb and parts our lips to see our teeth. Puts his hands, fingers between my lips and parts them to see our teeth like you would a mare, a horse, to check its teeth. Because the folks who had done a robbery not long before we drove by at a local uh, convenience store, one of them had gold teeth in the front. And I'm, si I'm sitting there humiliated. Neither my, my, my best friend and I, neither of us had any gold teeth. And, you know, not long after that moment, they give us this stern talking to, and then um, they get another call about two other people who might be the perpetrators. Ratchet, uh, gun goes up, and three cars speed off and leave us there sitting on the curb. 
and we sat there probably, you know, maybe we probably sat there for a minute or two, but it felt like we sat there forever. And that's when the rage bubbled up because I was so helpless and emasculated. And, and I'm a college student. I had marched against apartheid. I was, I was woke. And I had a lot of things I could have said. But I realized if I say anything, if I say shit to these people, mm-hmm. I'm not getting home or at least getting beat up really bad. If I just sass them any kind of way, I'm not getting home. And we get in the car, long drive back, silent. And you kind of go on with life. Our body has incredible ways of coping and our psyches have incredible ways of coping with trauma. But one of the key ways it does this, which is not healthy, is it pushes it down and it represses it. And I saw this man's face on the ground and a neck on his neck, a knee on his neck. And I got transported immediately back to Davis, California, sitting on a curb with a gun on me. And, but for the grace of God, I'm not, I'm not on this podcast. Um, hope and pray you know for me and for others when they see the response of people yeah um that they will hear hear in you something that's resonating through every black life and every brown life in this in this country who have watched this and had all of these. So think of just the emotion here in this moment with just you. You put that on, yeah. you put that exponential, exponential yeah. steroids across 13% of the United States of America. And I would hope that people would have just a little bit of human empathy for what they're seeing that they want to decry protesting and uprising and yet, we, everyone I've heard decries the looting. There's not one person, yeah. not one yeah. leader, African-American leader, anyone. Yeah. And, but we, we cannot be dismissive of this raw brokenness that we face in our society. And your experience and your emotion to that, which, which now comes up again in all this watching that, is not, I mean, I don't have that experience. No. Yeah. And I'm troubled to the core by it. And I never had that experience. I, guess, I, 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 I pastor a multi-ethnic congregation, um, which means I have white friends. And my wife grew up in a neighborhood where she was the first black kid in her school district. Uh, so she's grown up in a very multi-ethnic, multi-racial kind of thing. And I got friends who tell me stories of cussing out police officers, white friends. Oh. I got friends who've had open containers in the car and weed wafting out and got off with a, a, par, a ticket. Uh, I've got, I have one friend who told me he got stopped, was drunk, 
got out of the car before the uh, the, uh, the guy, the, the police officer, got to him to get out to say, what did I do wrong? But he lives in a world that says, I have rights. In his world, I have, I have the presumption of innocence. And his, in his world, I pay your salary, Mr. Police Officer. And I can, say, I can speak to you and say to you whatever I need to say to you without worrying about whether I'm going to get home. Because as long as I don't strike you, as long as I don't, you know, uh, do something like that, I, in my mind, I, I'm presuming that everything's going to be okay. The worst things that happen to me is I'm going to get a, a ticket. And I sit there just dumbfounded, almost like, I, I have no idea what that feels like. Mm. And the thing about it is that it's not something you have to feel at all. It's just something that just is. Mm. And... And 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 it's and it's it's insidious uh, and automatic and and I don't know. James Cohen helps me a lot with this one. It's it's the cross and the lynching tree. The, yes. the cross, it's crucifixion. We identify as this beautiful thing we put around our necks. And he says, no, that was that was the terror. You know, the crucifixion was all about superiority and inferiority as a tableau. Mm-hmm. along the road, just, just in case you think you want to get out of line and, and go against the status quo, look up there at the horror that's going to happen to you. If yeah, you it was a if, public if you, execution go, to keep people in line. And, and so were lynchings. You lynch people so that the other black folk would stay in line. Mm-hmm. It was the, to put terror into them. And, there's, and, and I, so it's like, a, a, you know, the, the, the tree gives way to the knee. And there's a, there's a look on that man's face when he's, when he's got his knee on the guy's neck, on George Floyd's neck. His hand is in his pocket. It's almost like there's a nonchalance, dis, 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 there's almost a detachment from what he's doing. Yeah. And he looks like, he looks like Damian uh, Lillard made a shot at the end of a game and there's this wonderful picture of him just looking up like, yeah, I did that. Like, what? What did you expect? It's just, it's what I do. Just like, like it's this incredible picture. And here's this guy, as far as we can tell, knee on a lifeless body for minutes afterwards. Yes. And he's chilling. And, it, and for anyone who is uh, still holding on to, a white supremacist ideology, anyone who are the, the not good people among us, they can look at that as like, yeah, yeah, that's what you do. So now they're looking at, the first autopsy said, well, maybe he had some other conditions. Heart issues. <laughs> maybe he had heart issues. Maybe that he was had- the official, and this is, the, <laughs> again, the distrust of, of this, and now you've had two other independent autopsies. Yeah that both point to asphyxiation and homicide. And, you know, again, does that mean that that coroner intentionally was trying to skew the results to protect the police? Or is, again, is this a, a system in a way and a structure that we just kind of operate out of? I don't, I, you yeah. know. Yeah, if I get, if I have cancer and I get hit by a car, <laughs> the good. cause of death is not cancer. 
Right. Well, there's a lot of people debunking COVID. They say, well, he already had comorbidities. You know, he had diabetes sure. and he was overweight and he had heart issues and got COVID. Yeah. So COVID didn't really kill him. He would have died anyway. He would have died in a year or two anyway. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about? Hey, Goebbels, why don't you pump the brakes? What are we talking about? <laughs> you know, we, we've, we've, we've talked a lot. We, a lot. There's a lot to be said. Yeah. And I don't know that we can accomplish it all in in one podcast, I think what we are beginning for the people who are interested in this, and I think people at, at Chapelwood and our worship communities is that we're in, we're, we're making a turn and engaging in, in, on a new path and a new journey. Uh, not everybody will go with us. I'm not so, you, you mentioned white supremacists looking at that and I'm not, I'm not really, I, I can't do anything about a white supremacist. I don't think we're going to convert a white supremacist. What I am deeply concerned about our people who are my friends and are your friends and your friends mm. who somehow that we'll go back to thinking this is just a one-off or whatever. And I really, f there's something that feels different about this. Yeah. Something feels different. And I hope that it is different. And I, and I, I am sorry that it's taken this for it to feel different to me. And I understand that, as I said this morning, that for me, that just is evidence of a lot of privilege that I live in. Right, right. Um, I, I, I'd be remiss. Um, I, I, I feel my voice um, adapting and pivoting toward being more prophetic. Uh, it's, it's daunting, but it just kind of is what it is in this, this stage of my life and my um, ministry. But I, I, I still go back to, um, there's a climate that over the last three years have been cultivated in this country. Um, an exacerbation of stuff that's been kind of lying there below the surface the whole time. But um, uh, a permission giving even, mm -hmm to celebrate preference, difference, Violence. prejudice, um, and, and become unabashed about my privilege and, and, and almost challenge uh, anyone who might say that. And, and then create, we also have created echo chambers, you know, called algorithms that will only feed us yeah. what we have a confirmation bias towards anyway. Social media. Social media in particular. Um, but the fact that we can turn to a station and hear from a commentary standpoint what we used to call news yeah, and yeah. hear exactly what we, we already have been fed and, and, and have tended to believe. When we had the dehumanization of people happen in the form of call, starting to, to outwardly, cavalierly call people aliens again, El Paso happens. You know, it, it's a climate. Um, when you can cavalierly just start talking about shithole countries, it creates a, a, a cavalier kind of permission to say, we, it's okay to be over in a corner over here. And, and now segregation and, and the ability to be segregated becomes more normalized mm -hmm. that I don't need to understand you anymore. I don't need to see myself as interconnected with you anymore. I can. I, I actually am okay because there's something coming from on high 
that is making the climate okay for me to like be back into my rugged individualism. Don't tread on me. I won't tread on you. But now I can also dehumanize and devalue people because the rhetoric on high is creating this climate. It's good people. There's some good people in that march, that white supremacy march saying blood and soil, that white supremacy march saying um, Jews will not replace us. There's some good people out there. Um, and yet, I don't hear anybody saying, yeah, there are a few people rioting and looting. But there's some good people in those same demonstrations that the vast, vast majority of those people are good people, but that's not coming from on high. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's what's making the time we're in the most dangerous time of my lifetime with regard to what could break out and the violence that could break out in this country. And, and I, am, I am, my prayers and my, my activism and whatever I can do in my sphere of influence is gonna go to um, um, speaking to these structures and these systems. Um, you know, it's, it's, some of it's about November, yeah, and about who we, who we vote for in November, that's great. But we've got to start thinking now about the kind of dialogues and conversations. I love how Cleve always talks about we have to create these spaces. We've got to really get uh, vigilant about creating spaces where we can mm-hmm. actually have the kind of constructive dialogues um, uh, while we can. Because uh, as you guys both know, um, a few weeks from now, if we don't do something, this, the news cycle will swallow this up. There'll be the next thing. Yeah. I, is there a hurricane coming? Did I just yes. hear that? Cristobal. I, I, I was calling someone that we wanted to go and serve today. And she said, uh, Christian, I, don't bring me the food from Ivan today. I've got to go in and stock up on things because and she's an 85-year-old woman. I got to go stock up now because there's a hurricane coming. <laughs> well, it's still way out there, a tropical storm. Don't get everybody freaked out yet. Although I am ready to break up with 2020. I'm ready to just yeah, that's out. right. Uh, that's 2020, right. I'm done. We're done with Call it quits. Can, can, I, can I just say, yeah. uh, one of the things I'm learning in all of this is, um, is the journey, particularly for white folks, is that, and I, and I kin it to um, marital issues sometimes with myself, that, that um, I think when Jesus said, you know, I, I, um, Moses allowed a, um, a uh, certificate of, of divorce because of your hardness of heart. Mm. And there's a sense in which with my own, um, uh, with my own spouse, that there's times that I can build up a hardness of heart that I don't listen to her. I've already know what she's going to say. I build up the defense systems. It's been years in the making, you know, and this is coming back around, right? You know, and, and there's a sense in which if that's going to change, I've got to soften my heart and hear her words differently. And I feel like that this situation, the body of Christ, Chapelwood, is being called. And, and one of the things I love about this community is that it's, con- it's going to continue to follow Jesus in the world. Right. And so I feel like part of the work for white folks is to say, um, how do I not let my heart get hardened? Because I may have to hear some things that I don't want to hear that my defenses are going to come up on that I'm going to be able to discount. And the work right now, the work right now is just to let it in and let that thing do its work. And when I've done that with Michelle, when I build up defenses and when I've let it in, there's always been a deepening of my own spirit our relationship, our life together, something breaks in and breaks out differently, but I have to let go. And part of that too, as I wonder, 
is if the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are helpful too, is that we have to recognize as white folks that there's a problem. Yeah. That we have to then acknowledge that, um, that, that, um, that there's a God that's out there that may want it differently. And we have to surrender our life and our will to that, will to that God. And then we go on this fearless and moral inventory of saying, how did, how did this happen? How did it get constructed this way? Because at the end of this, I know there's freedom. Yeah. At the end of this, it's better, it's not worse. <laughs> at the end of this, something breaks out in, um, in the nature and the character of God that, that, um, that I've always longed for, but don't know how to get on my own. If I, if I may. Um, the step though, mm. you, know, you get to four or five and that's the, that's the turn, mm. you know, um, I have people in our community who are, um, working steps in the program and they always talk about four or five somewhere near, man, it's when you get to a making amends. Mm. That's the thing. I can recognize I have a problem. I can yes. do a, a fearless inventory. I can realize that I can't do this on my own. I need a higher power. I call that higher power, Jesus Christ, whatever. But then it's like, now make a list of everyone that you've wronged, everyone that you've caused mm -hmm. harm to Absolutely. with this problem that you have. Yeah. And now you have to go, whether or not they receive it or not, you have to go at least try to make amends. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's that's what if, if we're gonna go there, that's where I'd be that's where I'm sitting right now. Mm. It's like uh, a message to white people using that as a as a wonderful model. Where's where's the, the amends? And it's in systems. It is not you becoming nicer to me. It's not one person getting a job. It's like, well we, we have people getting a job and not giving me a raise, but you can. Just don't get me wrong. Uh, it's not that. Uh, structures. It's structures. Yeah. And, it's, and that's something we need to struggle with right now. The 12 steps is something you deal with every day. It's one day at a time. Easy does it. You know, keep that thing going. Um, but you gotta wake up every day. I think racism, racism is, is, a, is a virus. It's a disease. Um, it's sin. Love how finally a, a few denominations a few years ago declared racism a sin officially in their documents the UCC and some others um, but I, the 12 steps are a wonderful model for how you deal with something like that and how you recover and I think we're in that that place where many times people get to step four you get to step five well I think it's easy for white folks to get caught in the first three steps yep. there's a problem there's a God I surrender and really the work, like you're saying, it, it's all, it, but, but I think that what I hear and what, what I really resonate with what, in this conversation, what you said, John, is that there's a, there is an, there's a window that's open and this window has been open a thousand times and it will be open a thousand more times um, um, because there will, there will be injustice in the world. Mm -hmm. But something's happening in this moment within our own culture within our own church within this moment of time that we're feeling collectively uh, the spirit say take a step D um, take a step forward um, take a step towards your freedom 
um, towards the liberty of others, towards the world that I'm calling and making all things new and take it a step forward. Um, and that is something that um, we don't get to conjure up in a sense. Like I don't get to say, okay, cue that. That's something the spirit says, hey, yeah. this is a time, follow me, mm -hmm. you know? And um, yeah. You know, man, I thanks, thanks for coming, spending yeah. time with us. Thank you. Your voice is powerful and... Yeah. You know, one of the things, everybody at Chapwood loves you and knows you, and I feel like it's important for them to hear your heart on this as well as we move forward. I yeah. have a great deal of respect for you in all of our communities. Yes. Um, oh, I've, I've, you I've, used to be the most popular confirmation speaker of all time. <laughs> I, we we kind of had to put it on hold this year with COVID, but... Uh, uh, well, it, it's been... Um, this is where I... I was, I answered the call. Yeah. You know, um, and, and this is the place that, uh, allowed a platform to emerge for multi-ethnic and the multi-ethnic kind of church and movement that I, I feel called to lead. And, um, and I think it's for moments like this in particular, where I think that, um, as we level up to adoption versus birthright, as we level up uh, to the shared humanity and the interconnected and interdependence that is the gospel, um, that more and more we bring heaven to earth and what we do here starts to look like heaven. Um, and I think those, are, those of you who are fighting a good fight, listening to this uh, in the multi-ethnic world, I, I feel your pain right now. I, I hear your pain. These are, these are moments where it's not, it's important not to shrink. Um, and it's important not to try to placate one side or the other. It's just, it's just time to be authentic. Mm. And it's in moments like these where I have the also distinct privilege of being symbolic of God's intervention. And in, I think the greatest ill in this, this world right now, I think racism is our greatest ill, but as a black man, who pastors people who are white and black and brown and Asian. The fallacy is that the upper room is a whole lot of black folks. No, the upper room is 42% black. It is fully 30% white. And, they, and I know that white people, white men in particular, have to fight all of the things we've been talking about, yeah. all the programming to say that this man, this black man is my leader my spiritual leader. Um, and I don't, take, I, I don't take that lightly at all. I believe it's a privilege for me to stand there as a, a way for them to really fully embrace the full gospel of Jesus Christ that makes us all connected regardless what we look like. Um, but I also, I also re receive and have to deal with the burden of knowing that in moments like these, the more I, I have to become Contextually, I'm a black man. And what happens, what's happening in moments like these are things that I have reactions to and, and, and deal with in a way that um, it is, is my duty, I believe, to share with, with our people and, um, and kind of let the, the chips fall. Trust the spirit. Thank you. It's a good word to end on. I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. I'm Christian Washington. And this is Pod Have Mercy.